Welcome everybody to another head cold infused edition of Pottywood, the show where we talk to people who make movies about movies. I am your slightly bunged up co-host Steve Hester and with me as always is... But it's me, Andrew Roger Carson, celebrating that we won Euro! No, England is victorious! We, no, no, Andy, Andy, it, the, the Italians won. Oh shit, I got the wrong page. Hang on a minute. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm here absolutely devastated because we lost the Euro. But it's fine, it was a good game. Italians won. Well yes. Done. Yes, and there certainly wasn't any incidents which deserved a red card at any point during that match. No, I think he forgot to pack them on this occasion. But, mm. hey, at the end of the day, still a great game. Yeah. But, you know, you can't expect a final of uh, the Euros to just be served up to you. But one thing that can be served up to you is the What's in the Box review of Waitress that Steve had to watch last night. That was reaching a bit there, wasn't it? I know. I had You were one struggling a bit with that one. I, I forgot what I was saying halfway through <laughs> what I was saying. And then I was like, wait a minute, what week are we on? Is this the week for Waitress? It, it is the week, week for Waitress. It is the week for Waitress. It makes sense with who our guest is as well. So, so <laughs> last week, Steve... Shut up, Steve. Right, Steve what? had the good fortune of going through what's in the box, and we picked out Waitress, which yes. is Adrienne Shelley's 2007, 2007 comedy. And you watched it last night, Steve. I did. Um, uh, like Andy just said, it's a 2007 romantic comedy written by the sadly late uh, Adrienne Shelley, which we'll talk about um, uh, on Timely passing in a bit, but uh, for now, we need to talk about the film itself, and it's the story of a small-town waitress by the name of Jenna, played by Kerry Russell, and at the very beginning of the film, she finds out that she's pregnant to her, let's not mince words, absolute shit-stain of a husband, played by uh, Jeremy Sisto. Very, very creepily played by Jeremy Sisto, I actually played that a little bit too well um <laughs> and then along the way she starts to have a uh, an affair with her gynecologist played by nathan fillion who as far as i'm concerned captain malcolm reynolds is in this so yay um but the movie is it's a very it's a very soft it's a very very gentle comedy which deals with it deals with the pursuit of happiness basically and trying to find it wherever you can and realising that sometimes it is best to let things go in order to move forward. And it's it's a very, very easy watch. And over the last few weeks, we've been watching some really, really tough stuff. I mean, going back to like Casualties of War, or even Taxi Driver, a few weeks ago when we had Bill on, and they were quite hard watchers. It's a very funny film in parts as well, with some really, really nice dry humour. And it's also got some really good performances by, like I say, Kerry Russell as Jenna. It plays it very, very straight and down the line with some really, really nice moments, including one where she does actually start the relationship. And she goes from, like, wide-eyed shock to this great big grin on her face. It's a movie which you could very happily watch on a on a like a nice, lazy Sunday afternoon and just curl up on the couch next to your boyfriend or girlfriend and sit there with a blanket right around you and just get nice and snuggly with it all yeah full in agreement of that yeah. i actually watched it again and this is probably the the third time that i've watched it uh, i remember when i first saw it when it first came out 
you know, it, it's not what you would class or what you used to class as the girl movie. No, it isn't. You know, this is something that men can get into as well. And I think I mentioned after I watched it, I was like, Waitress achieves something that doesn't really get to me that much. It made me want to punch Jeremy Sisto in the face. <laughs> yeah, because he is an which, absolute... His, his character and, of Earl is absolutely disgusting right from the very first time you see him. You there, just there is no redeeming in the quality in this character no. at all. But that, I think, comes down to how amazing an actor he is, mm. that he can evoke that kind of relationship in a male. I mean, yeah. females obviously are going to hate this character, but even the males hate this mm. character. And the funny thing is, and I just realized thinking about it while you were talking, that you've got the three leads in Kerry Russell, um, Nathan Fillion. Nathan Fillion. Yeah, I was thinking, and Jeremy Sisto. Mm-hmm. And the complete nerd in me was like, wow, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and Batman from the <laughs> the uh, DC animated universe. Yeah. Uh, all kind of moved on to that to do the voices on these animated films shortly after this movie. So. That's kind it's of weird, isn't it? If you look at it, going back with our past episode with Jay, he'll have worked with all these guys at some point in the DC animated universe, wouldn't he? I wonder if Jay's a fan of this movie. He probably is. I've got to ask this. I've got to find out because uh, he has worked with them all straight after it. And with yeah. him as the director of them, I'm, I'm betting that he does love this movie. There is actually a fair bit to love about it. Like I say, it's not a brash comedy. It's not a very in-your-face comedy. A lot of the humour in it is actually quite subtle, and it comes between the interplay between the characters. Um, and there's a really, really nice relationship between Jenna and old Joe, who's played by the late Andy Griffiths, who I don't really think is as big a name over here as he is in the States, but his, his kind of cantankerous demeanour is overlying this, this warm inner light that he's got for Jenna. And it comes across really well throughout the film. The two of them have got this really, really nice relationship where the two of them just don't take any bullshit from the other one. Yeah, and to be honest with Andy Griffith, if you've ever seen him in uh, A Face in the Crowd, which is one of my favourite movies of all time, and I know you haven't seen it, Steve, that's why it's in the box. There we go. He is truly, or he was truly an amazing talent. And just to see him in it, and it was one of his last films. It wasn't his last film, as no, I, I like you said last week. week. No, because there was another one that came after, which was uh, hold on, I've got it written down here, which is a film called Play the Game in 2009, where he also played a character called Joe, Grandpa Joe. Very interesting. Yes. So, waitress, is it deserving of its uh, certified fresh rating, Steve? Yes, it is, Andrew. He's, he says nervously, eyeing up our guest for this week. Uh, no, it is. It's it's a very it's a very sweet, it's a very charming film, and I think both genders can easily get something out of this one. Yeah. I know, and I believe it's next year. It's fifteen years old, and it's worth seeing. Yeah. But speaking of anniversaries, we watch them again all of the time, or we get them on Prime for free. We only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. Take the bull out to the barn. We've got this shit down tight. That was an unbelievable build-up for anniversaries, which is incredibly sad because only one movie is celebrating an anniversary this week. Only the one? Yes. Can you believe, Steve? Uh, no sé, Andrew. That ten years ago, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part 2 was released. Was that the slightly unnecessary splitting of the final book into two movies? Yes. Yes. And I knew you'd have something to say about this. 
Uh, to be perfectly honest, I haven't actually read any of the Harry Potter books, and I came late to the Harry Potter films. So I've really got nothing... I, I, I actually... No. The last few films, I thought, went unnecessarily visually dark. Particularly the Half-Blood Prince, and at the end of that, you can't see a damn thing that's going on. Well, um, they were shot in the English summertime, so... No, <laughs> No, it's too bright for the English summertime. But no, I didn't. I didn't mind it. But it did kind of kick off this trend of splitting. Uh, it, it also went on with the, the Hunger Games and Twilight and a lot. Really, the, the tween fiction that was going on at the time and taking the last book in the series and splitting it into two and making two very different uh, movies out of it to try and squeeze as much money as they can out the franchise before it's over. True. So. I remember I saw Deathly Hollows Part Two. My first thought was, I must have missed some Harry Potter movies. I think they cut out quite a bit from the books, the previous films anyway. No, I mean, I, I'd seriously missed... I could not decipher which Harry Potter movie was which. And I know that I have to watch them again. It's just kind of dedicating that time. But in watching it, you know, it was the shortest Harry Potter movie, which realistically should have been the longest if they just tacked those two parts together. But I'm not going to crib Harry Potter too much because Bill will kick my ass. Yes, and plus we need to get Bill on for for a review of the whole thing in, uh, well, hopefully before the end of the year. Yeah. Well, get him I wasn't and Mark sh- back on. I wasn't sure if he worked on uh, Deathly Hallows Part 2 because he said that 2011 was the year that he left Warner Brothers. So I wasn't sure if he was directly involved with Harry Potter by that point, but I'm sure he'll tell us. And because we don't have any more anniversaries this week, also want to give a, a special shout out to two movies that are being released this week. Tomorrow, or earlier in the week if you're actually listening to this, so I don't know why I say tomorrow. It's because of the times that we record this versus when it actually goes out. It's fine, it's you'll true. get the hang of it. Yes, we're, we don't trust what we talk about, <laughs> so we, we want time to edit it. Uh, Gunpowder Milkshake is released this week, which I will watch purely for the fact that Karen Gillian is in it. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. wonder why that is, Andy. I, c- I can't imagine why. It's because, she, apart from that, she is an absolutely amazing actress and a redhead, and that always works for me. Um, and of course, <laughs> later in this week, Space Jam Two, which Jay did some storyboard work for. So I'm I'm going to file that under unnecessary sequels, which may actually be quite good. I don't know, but we'll have to wait until it actually comes out and we see for ourselves before we. Comment properly. I know. Let's move on from anniversaries and let's introduce our guest for this week. So this week, really wanted to kind of spice things up a notch by actually having someone who was involved with last week's What's in the Box pick of Waitress. So I've gotten to know the movie cinematographer, Matthew Irving, over the last few years. Discovered he is as much a movie nerd as I am, especially when it comes to the Criterion channel and its amazing selections. That's a, a, a movie channel, Steve, that has movies on it. Yes, I'm aware of that. Thank you. Yes, I bet you don't don't know what Janus films is, do you? Are they two-faced? Matthew has lensed over 30 feature films, including the aforementioned Waitress, as well as other movies such as Waiting with Ryan Reynolds, Indie Rave Movie Groove, Quarantine 2, and a host of others. Movies he has worked on have won Best Cinematography Awards. Five of the movies he has lensed premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. He was named one of the 25 new faces of independent film by Filmmaker Magazine. He talks on industry panels. He's written articles for Movie Maker Magazine. He's a member of the International Cinematographers Guild. And he joins us today from Los Angeles. Matthew, thanks for coming along and joining us. Hey guys, good to be here, thanks. 
Now that introduction, you've got nothing to talk about. We might as well just sign off. <laughs> <laughs> great. It's great to be here. Uh, take care, guys. Oh, this is going to be the easiest episode to edit ever. <laughs> True. It's already finished. We just don't know yet. So, uh, as we discussed earlier on the episode, Matthew, Steve watched Waitress for the first time last yes. night. Mm-hmm. through his watching the box challenge so i wanted to bring you on to show uh talk more about this indie darling and specifically yes. adrian shelley's direction as well so i do want to clear up some uh misrepresentation that this was her first feature it wasn't her first feature she had directed right. one or two small independent features as well as uh, some shorts prior to this but this was a graduating level for her did she kind of uh, request anything leading up to that that maybe you were not accustomed to? Um, not really. I was just surprised just how, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, just how prepared she was, how focused her vision for this project was. Uh, she was just laser focused on the quirkiness, the rhythms of her own dialogue. Uh, she just wanted to make sure she preserved that following through that the visuals served that. I, I mean, she had been an actress for many years for Hal Hartley. Um, yes. Who's an, you know, an indie director of legend. And so she knew movies. You, you know, you call yourself, you know, a, a, a movie connoisseur, and, and I pretentiously do as well with me, myself. But she she lived and breathed indie movies and quirky movies. So she had the vision for this, and she knew what she wanted and actually, her assignment for me was uh, to watch Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Wow. So That's amazing. <laughs> that was kind of her vision for the color palette and to get a sense that we weren't in the real world in this movie. We, we shouldn't be afraid to portray its, its own reality. No, definitely. That, that mm. is something that is incredibly noticeable uh, about Waitress. And speaking of which, I guess I didn't even ask you, do you kind of agree or disagree with steve's breakdown of waitress at the beginning of the show it's all right it's all right you can call me out go on (laughs) well i don't think there was anything too controversial in that (laughs) i think i totally agree with that uh and and i totally agree about jeremy sisto's performance too he uh he's it's a little it's a little scary how well he got that that character down (laughs) yeah he was just like in little lines where he was saying uh, he, he was saying oh i'm not gonna get that angry it's like no 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 you shouldn't be getting angry not that angry yeah, and it was just little little dialogue bits like that. We were just thinking, "Oh no, I really hate this guy." You know, in some ways, I think it was a tough set for Jeremy because he's—I I don't know him well enough, despite having worked with him, to call him method. So I don't want to call him out and call him a method actor. But he definitely liked to stay focused and in the zone in that character while he was on set, and it made it difficult because there's there's the scene—the only scene he really shares with the others is when he comes and he uh, breaks up the wedding um, reception. So he's with all the other characters that whole day of shooting. And I'll tell you, Carrie Russell and Nathan Fillion and Andy Griffith were all so just wonderful, wonderful people. And, and it was just such a great environment. That whole set was a feel-good set. And here's Jeremy trying to stay focused in his jackass of a character. And it, it made it, I think, difficult for him uh, in such a feel-good uh, environment. You actually had a question on that, Steve, didn't you, on that scene? Uh, yeah, because I did notice towards the end of the scene that when he storms out, he pulls on the door and then realises, oh no, this is a push. Was that, was, that, <laughs> was that a deliberate thing or was that just something that happened in the moment? You know what, I think that probably happened in the moment. Uh, it's, it's, it is tough to remember those things 15 years on, but yeah, that seems like a, it seems like it was an in-the-moment kind of thing. That uh, Jeremy's character is a good example of... Um, you know, what we wanted to build our visual style around. 
um, I'm a big proponent in all of the films that I prep with all of the directors I work with and, and of tailoring the visuals to mirror or go counterpoint to the character's journeys and the character's, you know, a re reflection of where they're at, you know, ment mentally in the whole story. And so Jenna, everything around Jenna is sort of smooth moves. It's dolly moves. It's static shots. It's some steady cam. But every time we're around Jeremy, it's handheld and it's mm, frenetic. Yeah. And there's something unbalanced about it. And so that that breaking up of the uh, wedding is a good example of that, where we're kind of lyrical and we're on dolly leading up to it. And then Jeremy shows up and throws everything in a meat grinder. It also seems to be slightly darker whenever Jeremy was around as well. Yes, exactly right. So we lit Jeremy much cooler also. So there's a lot of blues and greens when Jeremy is around. And then it's much warmer. Uh, the, the, the diner is sort of... Uh, Jenna, Carrie Russell's safe place. So uh, lit it in very warm tones. And then Jeremy comes into it and things get darker and, and much cooler color palette. Well, it was a 20-day shoot, which is uh, which is a very, very tight, tight shoot for a movie. Um, well, were there any days when you were feeling pressure more than the, the others? Uh, like, for example, the, the diner was a real working diner called the Halfway House Cafe. So... Yeah. How did, how did you feel having such a limited time frame shooting it? Well, I'll tell you, I only really felt the pressure on days one through 20. Um, <laughs> <the rest. laughs> no, it was, um, it's really par for the course on, on the kind of budgets that I work on. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of proud to be one of your first guests who's kind of a, kind of a journeyman other, rather than a household name or, you know, with credits like The Hobbit and Clash of the Titans and things. Frankly, a lot of my movies people won't have seen, and I kind of, you know, I've made a, a really nice living making a lot of movies that a lot of people haven't seen, quite frankly. But I, I keep working, and and you keep being thrown into these kind of situations where you got to shoot a movie like this in twenty days. Now it's down to fourteen days, quite often, and you know you you get a reputation for moving fast and delivering high production value, and you just get in this adrenaline zone where you just crank it out. So. Even though Waitress was earlier in my career, I was sort of already in that zone and you just know what has to be done. I come in ultra prepared. I'm so OCD. I've got my <laughs> obsessive compulsiveness uh, during pre-production so that once the cameras start rolling, you just you're working ahead. You're shooting one shot and having your grips and electrics rigging the next thing. And you just move the whole thing along like, a, you know, ideally like a well-oiled machine. Well, in that, I mean, how involved were you in uh, the creative process alongside Adrian? I mean, obviously, colour is the huge theme I've mentioned here, you know, mm. particularly to Kerry Russell's character. She's got a lot of blue around her. And uh, did you have insight into how that was kind of portrayed Absolutely. Absolutely. So this was actually a textbook example of how I like to work with directors when I get on a project. Um, I, I usually come on board about four weeks before shooting. And the first week I'm on, on a budget like this, obviously I get a lot more pre-production if it's a higher budget. But I, I come on about four weeks in advance. And the first week is spent uh, usually just shot listing and breaking down the script with the director and it's great when it's someone like Adrian because she just oozes the vision. She's her enthusiasm is palpable, and she just she kind of wraps everybody in her orbit in into the project, and 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 that enthusiasm is just contagious. So I I came in 
and we started daily shot listing sessions. We actually did our shot listing at a coffee bean coffee shop that's about four doors down from what is now Quentin Tarantino's New Beverly Cinema. Oh, yeah. I've been there. And, yeah. And, um, Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> it was just a, um, a joy working with her because sometimes, you know, directors have all varying degrees of how much they want to be involved with the visuals, believe it or not. I mean, we all know the big-time directors like Spielberg's and Tarantino's and Christopher Nolan's that have the whole vision in their head. But I'm used to kind of coming in and having to feel it out. And some directors just want to deal with performances, and some want to sort of have this whole vision in the classic director paradigm. So I showed up to my first shot listing meetings with Adrian, not sure what to expect. And she came in with pages of notes and thoughts. And, and like, like I said, my assignment to watch umbrellas of Cherbourg and she she knew she wanted Jenna's uh, flashbacks to these exotic pies that she makes she wants she wanted those to have an even heightened color palette like almost a Willy Wonka kind of thing and it's great because when a vision from the director is that well articulated that's when I can really come in as a collaborator and start the dance and it's like oh I see what you I see what you were doing in scene three maybe we can carry that through to th scene 10 and, and, and then she gets excited and goes, oh, my God, yes. And then maybe we can take it a step further and do this or that. So the whole thing, we just went through the whole script from page one to 97 or whatever it was and just laid out um, a shot list that also carried with it the Bible of style for, you know, what the camera was going to be doing, what the color palette was, wide lenses versus long lenses, all these choices you can make. We just laid it out in this notebook that we'd carry with us uh, onto the set. And the beauty is if you're that well prepared, it actually frees you up to be spontaneous on the day because you already have a battle plan, you have the marching orders, and then if inspiration strikes you on the set, you can just go off in that different direction and then make your adaptations to your notes. So it was just a dream working with Adrian because it was, it was really a beautiful dance in terms of our collaboration. And I just felt like, I could really serve the picture because she was being so clear about what she wanted. The movie has got quite a retro tone. And I think really from the first half, it's kind of a bit hard to pin down exactly when it's set. Yes. Um, it kind of feels a little bit 1950s, 1960s. But then, of course, you've got all the modern cars and, and then Nathan Fillion comes in and he's got a much more modern style. So was, it, was that all discussed from from those early days as well? Absolutely, absolutely. It was supposed to be just set anytime, anywhere. It, it's not even a nondescript town. Uh, people are surprised that we shot it in, in California, north of Los Angeles. Uh, some people swear that it looks like we shot it in Texas or we shot it in Georgia or somewhere. But, um, but yeah, that's exactly that timeless and placeless quality was very important to Adrian. Okay, so where did the real world ideas for the various pie flavors come from? <laughs> oh, yes, because there's a lot of them. That's a great question. You know, I I don't know where she came up with those. Uh, I don't know how many pie flavors she threw at the wall before uh, putting those into the script. But uh, but that that's an interesting thing is those pie flavors. We did some tests. Uh, we ra I rarely get camera tests anymore on these kind of low budgets. But we did want to do tests um, because whenever Jenna is thinking up a new pie flavor, there's a dramatic shot directly overhead and you see your hands come into frame and, and it's it's very sped up we it's under cranked on the camera which speeds up the uh the image when it's played back and we did all kinds of tests about how we wanted that to look so we could get it just right and then when it came time to shoot those 
you were talking about the very fast schedule of shooting. It was the one day that we shot a full day on a stage. We only had one day on a stage. And so we did all the stage work, which was mainly the bathroom in the diner was on stage. And so once we finished that day of shooting, I had to stay on and my camera crew had to stay on. We, we'd agreed to this ahead of time. It was built into the schedule. But we had a whole new grip and electric crew come on to go another six hours just to shoot pies. <laughs> so you'll see that there's actually in the end credits, there's a separate credit for pie gaffer because a whole new gaffer and a whole new crew came in to, to go overtime and shoot, shoot the pies. There is one thing before we do actually move on to something a, a little bit more serious. And this, I think this is definitely a British thing more than anything else. But as far as I'm concerned, they're not pies unless they have a cover. <laughs> they're well, the tarts cover, but the cover hadn't gone on yet uh that's later that's applied after you do the filling right right oh you've, you've got you've got stuff like chocolate pie with berries on the top of it it's like no there's no pastry cover on the top of that it's just a filled <sighs> dish that's a tart damn it we'll have to reshoot <laughs> yeah someone called hbo max we need to go back and do some reshoots after 15 That's right. years. Oh no, it's on Disney now. Oh, is it on Disney? It's, now? A, it's on Disney. It's on. Uh, it's on Disney Plus at the moment. Really, really? A, a whole movie about not wanting a baby. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's in the uh, the stars section of Disney Plus. Oh, wow. it's it's Fox Searchlight, wasn't it? So yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. It would it go straight. To, that's, it's still weird thinking that movies like Alien and Predator are, are being at the House of Mouse. It's terrible. I know, I know. The Queen Alien in Aliens is now a Disney princess. <laughs> oh, no, don't. <laughs> don't. I'm still upset at the fact that Princess Leia is a Disney princess. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyway. Well, listen, I know that we can't talk about uh, Waitress and Adrienne without, without obviously mentioning the, the huge tragedy surrounding this wonderful little film. And no question that is the shocking murder of Adrienne just after completion of this movie. And obviously spending so much time on creating this incredible small movie, you know, only for Adrian not to get to see its success and the awards that it would win, including for herself as well. You know, I remember hearing about Adrian's murder a, a day or so after it happened and the case itself is really so horrifying to hear about. And uh, now that it was deemed, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it was deemed as an intended robbery by an illegal immigrant who apparently owed a ton of money for being smuggled into the country. Then he was hired by a contracting firm who was working around her apartment at the time. Yeah. I, I don't know how accurate that is because it's the internet. But... Yeah, I don't know about the robbery element. The The, the story, as I understand it, is, and, and I've never read anything official about it. I just experienced it. Almost all of the waitress crew had reunited and were working on a movie in St. Louis um, when it happened. And so at the end of a shoot day, the uh, first AD, the first assistant director, gathered us all together because we had all been on Waitress, and he, he told us the news. And we just all, at least we were able to process it together because we were kind of all in one place, the same group. And it was a crew that was very near and dear to Adrian's heart. I mean, I, I still have an email I'll never erase from Adrian um, after she had finished her final cut of the film. And she wrote me an email that said... Uh, We've got to do another one. I want to get this entire crew back together. It was the best experience of my life in movies. And uh, and here's my next script. <laughs> and she attached her, <laughs> her next script. 
so the whole crew, we got we got to process it together. But yeah, as, as I understand it, it was a workman working next door and she went next door to complain about the sound and some, something escalated and just, just horrible, horrible tragedy ensued. It's really sad when, I mean, a lot of people may not be aware of who Adrienne Shelley is because, you know, she was more from the independent world. Uh, Hal Hartley, uh, The Unbelievable Truth is probably still one of my favorite ever performances that she has ever done. Uh, yeah, and I amazing. was a huge fan. And just for this incredible movie to come out and for her to not see the kind of accolades and everything from it, it is probably th this horrible tragedy surrounding this beautiful movie uh, that that kind of weighs over it uh, when you watch it. I remember because I saw it uh, obviously after the incident had happened to have her as a starring role in the film as well as one of the supporting characters you know it, it's this very bittersweet feeling watching this movie uh, even these years afterwards knowing where she should be right now yeah absolutely and i never i, I can't not cry in the final shot of waitress when carrie russell takes her in the in the world of the movie it's her baby girl and she walks off down the road Oh, is that a spoiler? Or should I not say spoilers? No. <laughs> but anyway, in the final shot, when Carrie Russell carries the baby girl away down the road and then the credits roll, that's Adrian's daughter. Wow. Actual daughter in the film. And so there's something incredibly poignant about that last image uh, that just gets me every time. It is. And it's, it's one thing that people should take away uh, from watching Waitress. And we know a lot of people who actually do listen to the show actually go and watch uh, the what's in the box things and you should really track down a lot of adrian's earlier stuff especially in the independence um to really let it process what an amazing talent she was yeah watching this you do get the feeling that this could have been the stepping stone movie to greater and bigger things mm -hmm. this this could have been the key which unlocked uh, a really really fantastic future and it's just a shame that that never came to fruition but um just just out of curiosity before we move on did anything happen to that other script that she sent you, or is that forever? Yes, no, they made it um, to try. I actually was not available at the time that they shot it, so I oh. was not a part of it. Oh, but Cheryl Hines, who's in Waitress, um, actually directed that next script, and it's called Serious Moonlight, um, starring Meg Ryan and I don't know, you'll have to Google the rest. But So it became Serious Moonlight, but I think Adrian had a, had a much more quirky... Adrian vision for it, um, but uh, but I certainly don't want to denigrate it. I, I'm glad, as a tribute to her, that they went on and made that. Well, let's kind of jump from one restaurant to another here, back in time a little, uh, ah. to waiting. Yes. Uh, and I'm curious to know, both waiting and waitress are two comedies set in restaurants so close to each other in release <laughs> as well. Did the success of waiting play a large role in you getting the waitress gig? Definitely not, because waiting was in the can but had not come out yet when I got Waitress. So it's just total coincidence that I got those. I, I like to tell people that I've, you know, I've completed my Wait trilogy. I did Waiting, <laughs> then Waitress, and then I did another movie a couple of years later called Waiting for Forever. So, um, but, but I'm up for more. So if you're out there and you've got a, a script with Wait in the title, then I'm definitely your guy. But um, <laughs> but yeah, waiting waiting was a fun experience. But I, I shot that. Waiting was in the can for a few years before it finally saw its release uh, from Lionsgate. So that was kind of just sitting on a shelf somewhere when I shot Waitress. 
Okay. Uh, well, I'm almost afraid to ask this now, seeing what your answer to that last question was. But Kerry Russell uh, briefly appeared in uh, another service-themed project in the TV pilot for the proposal, ultimately, thankfully, abandoned series based on Kevin Smith's Clerks. Uh, was this brought up at any point during the filming, and did it have any influence on our casting? Oh, no, you know, I, I hadn't heard anything about that, actually. I don't know about that. I hadn't either until I started researching uh, researching everything and looking back at her, at yeah. her uh, credits, and yeah, it's there. So it just seems kind of weird connection between having having these films set in the service industry. Yeah, I know that's interesting. It is funny how things like that happen. I do know that uh, Carrie went straight from our set to I believe Mission Impossible. So she was she was excited about that and uh and then I ended up seeing Mission Impossible and she has perhaps the most disturbing death scene I've ever seen on on camera. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously we we've you've dabbled in a lot of comedy. And is there a kind of formula to shooting comedy? I mean, how do you approach it or would advise those kind of starting out filmmakers, uh, cinematographers on how to kind of set that up? So, yeah, I, I've, I've actually been really fortunate in my career that I've dabbled in a wide variety of genres uh, from the raunchy comedies uh, to romantic comedies to full on horror and even a really dark and gritty Western. And there are definitely different styles to each genre but the lighting is almost more reflective of the characters in the environment and less the genre. So, for example, if there's a spooky, scary scene in a comedy, I'm going to light it like it's a horror film for that scene, um, even if it's in an otherwise kind of crazy high-key light comedy. Uh, but, but waiting for sure, it's all in that restaurant, it's all wacky, so... It's definitely higher key. It has, um, it's kind of more flat lit just for, uh, you know, kind of a feel good feel. It's very poppy colors. Um, but then even in waiting, we did have a visual style. We had the big show was out front in the dining area. So that was really warm tones. And we had dark wood in the restaurant that helped that. And then there's the kind of behind the scenes in the kitchen, which is lit much more in that kind of cyan blue green fluorescent kind of feel and that's where like dane cook you know lords over his other cooks and back there and uh his welcome to the thunderdome you know uh, <laughs> quote and all these things and so so we definitely still had those two worlds going on and i think it's important to still do that when you're shooting a comedy and not just have everything become one you know you still have to kind of tailor the visuals and we did the same thing with camera movement and waiting as well, that we started out the movie with very static shots. Actually, the movie starts out at a party, so that's all very roving camera handheld. But once you go to the restaurant, things are very static because there's not many customers and the day is just starting. And then as the customers start to arrive, the camera starts to move and there's some, some dolly shots and it becomes more lyrical and more fluid. And then finally, during the dinner rush, we pull out all the stops and the camera's moving. There's some handheld, there's some steady cam. And it all culminates in this huge Steadicam shot that we did that goes from the kitchen around the entire restaurant to every wait station and then ends up inside the bathroom, craning up over the bathroom stall. And, and then, boom, the dinner rushes over and the camera is static again. So, so even in the wackiest comedy where no one's going to be paying attention to the, the visual style and how it's built, 
we still built in those things. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously it has to be shot a lot differently than something like horror. And obviously you did Quarantine 2. And a kind of yes. question just jumped in my head here, because obviously the first Quarantine, directed by John Eric Dowdle, a good friend of mine, and that was all done in, in the classic found footage style. And yeah. as I remember with Quarantine 2 Terminal, that wasn't done right. in that style. So, And was that kind of the conscious decision to not kind of go in the, the wreck quarantine one found footage style and actually do something more classically horror based absolutely absolutely and that was built into the script that was written by the director john pogue and uh it was very important for both of us that we don't just get trapped within that found footage uh paradigm so we did end up doing the entire thing handheld still but we didn't want to make it that kind of nauseous handheld I, I, there are moments when it's going to be more frenetic of course but in general, we, we kind of did the handheld where the operator is trying to hold the camera as still as they can, but it still has that organic movement that uh, is just like something's on edge, something's about to happen. But, but absolutely, yes, we consciously went away from the found footage um, idea. Are you not a fan of the found footage? I am. If it's done well, uh, I just think less is more. And I think, I've, I think the found footage genre has kind of played itself out and had even by the time we'd made quarantine two um i'm glad it kind of rolled through horror i think it freshened things up a little bit and and uh i think there were some really good works that came out of it but but in general unless it's uh unless somebody comes up with some great idea out there that uh takes found footage to the next level i i kind of feel like we've been there done that yeah because there are only a few different areas that you could take it to at the end of the day isn't there yeah but i'll tell you as much as one might denigrate something in in hindsight like a Blair Witch I know there's people that hate that film but I saw its premiere at Sundance and it was it was amazing it was amazing to behold with a full packed Sundance audience um the first night it premiered um it was something different and fresh is there a set precedence when it comes to uh using particular lenses when it comes to a genre for you because uh, Outlaws and Angels which is a western you shot in about super 35 mil and uh, Waitress was shot in 35 mil so what's, what's the visual language for the genre for you? That's really that's really interesting that you brought up I love that you brought up uh, Outlaws and Angels because that's a really interesting case not only was that super 35 which means the image goes into the area you know typically reserved for sound but it was also shot in technoscope, and technoscope is a two-perf process that you can get more uh, you can get more footage on on the same uh, magazine of film because each frame is half as tall. So a normal thirty-five millimeter frame has four perfs, and it's kind of a square image, and then you crop that to any widescreen ratio you want. But in in technoscope, you're actually just using two perfs worth, so it's much grainier, which was important to us because all of those classic Sergio Leone films were shot this way. We wanted that kind of classic, grainy, spaghetti western kind of feel to this western. And the best way to do that was to shoot technoscope intentionally, not just to save money on film stock, but to kind of enhance the grain. And the hilarious thing is all these modern film stocks are, you know, are so fine-grained. They're all designed to compete with the clean look of digital that not only did we have to shoot technoscope to get the grain, but I had to use a much faster film stock than you would use in daylight usually uh, because faster film stocks are usually grainier. But we also intentionally underexposed the whole movie by a stop and a half. We did tests to find that sweet spot. And then when you print it up, it's much more grainy than if you expose the whole thing properly. 
So we really did everything we could to try to get that late 60s, early 70s feel to these Westerns. So the film choice kind of pushed us in the direction of the spaghetti Westerns. And then the lighting choice for that particular film, um, we were very inspired by uh, Altman's uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Brilliant. So we were definitely going for this kind of older school kind of style. And those are, those are the kind of technical choices that go into that. As for lenses specifically, I tend to use older series of lenses no matter what I'm shooting because I, I don't like it in general. Just my aesthetic is not to have the image too sharp, so sharp that you can cut your teeth on it. I shoot a lot of romantic comedies. You know, I shoot things like, uh, like Outlaws and Angels that are removed from this time period. So I like to kind of soften them up a bit, especially in the digital age. The counterpoint to that is, you know, when you got to be sharp, you got to be sharp. So I did shoot a Wesley Snipes action film called Armed Response. And for that, you know, I used tack sharp lenses and have a completely different look with a lot of lighting inspired by Blade Runner and totally different look in a completely opposite <laughs> aesthetic spectrum from Outlaws and Angels. So yeah, it varies from project to project, but I tend toward older, softer lenses. So now that we're kind of um, entering the, the new normal when it comes to film production now, and I know recently you were over in Dubai, was it, during the pandemic? Yes. Uh, I managed to catch a, a lot of footage of you over there, and I wasn't <laughs> totally thinking, you lucky bastard at all. <laughs> so so what what's the kind of new considerations on set like for working, and, and how are they differing in other parts of the world as they are in, say, uh, the U.S.? Yeah, well, I think the U.S. really has it down now. Are you talking in terms of COVID specifically? Yeah. Yeah. I think in the U.S. there's a great system uh, developed by SAG and the uh, the unions. It's like kind of like a pod system where everyone is kind of uh, designated in a particular pod and you kind of have you have the set at different times so that not everybody's crowded on top of each other, breathing all in each other's faces. So I think the U.S. has it down really well, and it'll be interesting to see when it starts to lighten up again, but uh, it's, it's going to be no time soon with this Delta variant going on at the moment that we're recording this. But it's interesting, in the UAE, it was kind of more of a free-for-all uh, because that was an interesting production. That was not a Hollywood production shooting in the UAE. Uh, the shoot that I did over there, I, I was over there from November through March, and we were shooting a big action film in Arabic for an Arabic production company. You know, a lot of big movies like Mission Impossible and Star Wars go over there and use their crew. And so, so the crew over there absolutely knows how to shoot a big action film, but they've never shot one in Arabic. Um, so ours is the first big Hollywood style action film to be shot in the local language with people that can reflect the audience that's gonna be watching this. And so it was really exciting to be a part of that. And uh, only a, a small core group of us came from the States. But because of that, it, we didn't really have, I mean, we were, we, we were testing for COVID every week and we would go into lockdowns and we would go into quarantines if, you know, a number of people tested positive or if someone too close to the talent tested positive, we would just shut down for 10 days and then retest and and, and see how things were. But so it, I was over there a long time and we shut down several times, but we didn't have the whole pod structure that we kind of have in the States. Yeah. You hear that, Tom? Shutting <laughs> <laughs> on your production impossible movie that we'll ha, never yeah. see. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm still telling you, Top Gun Maverick does not exist. It's a cleverly made trailer. 
that <laughs> movie that movie's already been forgotten about. No one knows. Okay, so without ruining the upcoming nominate five, we've nominate got five. Yes, nominate <laughs> five. I know Raiders of the Lost Ark is the Bible for you. Oh, it's and, everything to me. Yeah, and obviously yeah. we had uh, Mark Marshall here last week. He was around on that production uh, and told us some great behind-the-scenes stories from Lucasfilm. Yes, I loved hearing that. He was, a, yeah. he was a fantastic guest to listen to. That was just fascinating. He's an amazing guy. He I'm going to have to introduce you guys in L.A. I think you'd get yeah. on brilliantly. But where in the visual work of yours uh, has that movie worked for you? And how many times have you pulled off what you'd probably call the Raiders shot when you've been on a production? <laughs> well, Raiders is just part of my DNA now. You know, I saw it, it came out in theaters when I was 10 years old. And before that, I had been blown away by Close Encounters when I was six. So those are kind of the one-two punch of my life that got me on this path. Damn those movies. But um, <laughs> so Close Encounters made me realize that this isn't real, that someone made this and it's making all these adults in this dark room, you know, laugh and gasp and react as one. So I had that epiphany when I was six years old and then Raiders came out and that's it. That's all I wanted to do with my life. I, I wrote my first feature screenplay the next day, needless to say, uh, you know, it's still in turnaround. So, uh, <laughs> but I've got one like that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but Raiders, just everything about it, the reveals, there's subtle moments. There's a moment in the beginning adventure when, uh, when Indiana Jones and Satipo, uh, played by Alfred Molina are delving into the, the temple of the Chachapoyan warriors and, they just get inside the room with the gold idol. And there's a shot as they come around the corner and Satipo quickly crosses through the frame and it's a static shot. The camera isn't moving and Indiana Jones steps into the shot, but he's completely in shadow. He stops dead in his tracks and he's completely in shadow, but you can still make out his features in the darkness. It's just a beautiful example of exposure done right because he's very dark, but you could just see him in the darkness. And he's staring at that idol, which is, we haven't even seen yet. It's off screen. And then as he steps forward, the camera dollies toward him and he steps into the light and you see the gleam in his eye that he's, he's facing this thing that he's been seeking. And those kind of camera moves, that use of lighting, the stepping into the light and the reveal of his expression. And, and they're, they're throughout Raiders. Raiders is just chock full of moments like that. It's all about the reveal. Cinema is the art of the reveal. And how are you going to get from point A to point B in a scene in an artful way? And I think Raiders is a masterclass in that. It's also the long takes. You look at the drinking contest with Marion Ravenwood, that is all one shot. But people don't, it's not like the Goodfellas Copacabana Steadicam that draws attention to itself, which is an amazing shot. I'm not denigrating it. But something like the drinking contest, you're just in it. You're just watching it and you don't realize, oh, my God, there hasn't been a cut here. He's just artfully gone from this wide shot into a close up of Marion and then followed her putting the shot glass down on the table over to the other guy picking up the shot glass up into a close up of him. And it, it, it just I just feel like Spielberg had so much to prove in that movie after 1941 and I feel like he's hungry again, and I feel like he's at the top of his form. And uh, I just love every frame of that movie. A lot of credit has to go to uh, Douglas Slocum as well Absolutely. for the work on that. Yeah, on all Genius. three of the films. But uh, yeah, I think he nailed it straight out the bat with Raiders. Did yeah. Did you notice uh, in the most recent version of Raiders of the Lost Ark, 
uh, they have actually slightly digitally altered. You know the scene when um, he, he tosses the item, the gold item, to yeah. Alfred Molina and he goes yeah. to get away? Have you noticed that that item is now changed into a Marvel confidentiality agreement? <laughs> <laughs> I had not noticed that, but I did notice that in the end, when the ghosts are flying around, they digitally turned on the lamp in one shot uh, that Marion and Indy are tied to. There's a wide shot of them as the ghosts are flying around, and they digitally turned the lamp on, even though all the lamps exploded all around the compound. It drives me crazy when they do stuff oh, like that. God, yeah. No idea why they did that. I don't know why they felt the need to go back and mess around with movies. It's, it's like when he went back and fiddled with E.T. and put walkie-talkies in. He's like, no, you don't need to. You yes, don't at need least to. he walked that back. That was yeah. a terrible... Yeah, I think he walked it back because uh, South Park just skewered him for it. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Uh, on a passing note about Harrison Ford, have you noticed the last three times he has revisited his classic characters, he's, like, been injured yes. or, or nearly died. So yeah. he had, I believe, a door fell on him in During Force Awakens. Force Awakens. He ended yep. up almost getting knocked out, didn't he, um, in um, Blade Runner? I, I thought he nearly uh, drowned. Was it he nearly drowned? Because I thought he. Could... Oh no, sorry. I was thinking of it was um. What's his name? The the cardboard thing that was playing opposite him. Um... <laughs> Gosling. That's it, Ryan Ryan Gosling. Um, yeah. Apparently, he ended up actually getting socked on the jaw by Harrison Ford, which is oh, kind right. of which is kind of really bad in terms of oh, you've just punched your co-star in the face, and also really good that you've just been punched by Harrison Ford. Right. <laughs> Uh, I'd take that as a badge of honour if Harrison Ford knocked me out. I'm I'm sure he's got time after that joke about him dislocating his arm with Tom Cruise last week. And Harrison Ford doesn't have the best track record with landing airplanes either that he's piloting. No. (laughs) In film or in real life. Right. No, Harrison Ford now, he's like with Bruce Willis. He's the kind of person that seems to be constantly pissed off that his agent has still got his phone number. (laughs) Oh, we've recycled another joke. That's terrible. Uh, I know. Ugh. I'm just looking forward to him uh, in American Graffiti 3. He's going to reprise that character. <laughs> and crash his car into a plane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Harrison. We're, we're, we're looking we for you too. do. Yes, come we on do. the show. Yes, come on the show just so you can call us some assholes. I don't honestly think I could interview Harrison Ford. I'd be way too nervous. Uh, you would be if he listens to any of the episodes we've already done. I know, that's yeah. true. And the worst thing is, we absolutely love him. Blade Runner is my Bible. You know, it was the yep. film that turned me onto movies. Uh, and, yes. Um, and I'm absolutely with you. Raiders is just, it is just an Im- embarrassment of riches in terms of cinematography in terms of directing lighting action everything is just perfect ah just spot on how about that moment at at the end when indiana jones is told to come back tomorrow by marion in the bar so he's on his way out the door and she goes ha see you tomorrow indiana jones and he freezes in the doorway with the lattice work of the door the shadow of it on his face so that you can just see his eyeball lit through the lattice work it's just phenomenal yeah, it lighting it's brilliant work 
Well, you've not only been behind the camera, you've also done talks and you've written articles and all kinds of stuff for uh, cinematographers and filmmakers. And um, I'm guessing you usually get the same kind of questions coming coming up now and again. Um, but what is the best advice for those wanting to become uh, cinematographers or maybe transferring from like one area like commercials and corporate video into uh, actual filmmaking? What is the right. best way to get them to, to shoot for the moon? You know what? That's a that's a really great but very difficult question, especially since I'm 25 years into my career and things are so different now. The landscape is just so different. Um, I think one piece of advice is just not to have an ego to take every job that comes along. You know, after I shot my second feature as a cinematographer in 1997, my first job after that was as a film loader. And then my first job after that was as a second AC. And then I was DP on my third feature. You've kind of just got to take the jobs that you can get so that you can network more, that people can see your work ethic, people can see your personality. Um, and whatever job you take, even if you've just been a, you know, a DP on an award-winning short, if you're, if you're a second AC on your next gig, don't go around telling everyone about your award-winning short. Be the best second AC you can possibly be, and those people are going to want to work with you again, and, and, and they're going to make more opportunities for you. So I would say if you're just starting out, just be egoless and take every opportunity that comes along. It, it's really kind of how I clawed my way into this. That's really good advice. It's very good advice. Yeah. If and I, I think... can, I, I have one other piece of advice that I don't think people put enough thought into, and that is to just become a film historian. Um, yes. You know, I, I may be a cinematographer, but my greatest passion is film history. I just love on a macro scale, on a holistic scale, all the trends of cinema from silent to the to early sound days to, to the golden age of um, the studio system. Then you had Italian neorealism uh, through the French New Wave that inspired the cinema of the 70s in Hollywood. You just kind of got to look at the trends and know the whole shape of this great art form that we work in and the whole scope of it. And it, it's amazing how much just a deep knowledge of film will come through for you. If you're on a set and you're shooting the breeze, you can strike up great conversations with people just by connecting with some obscure film from the 40s or some obscure film from the 60s. You'll be on a set and just have a moment at lunch when a, a particular movie comes up and right there that's a great contact you've made just because you were bonding over a classic film so i would i my other piece of advice would just to really steep yourself in film history actually that's a really good point that you bring up there mm. because that happened to me in a restaurant just outside of universal studios a couple of years ago and i was waiting uh, to meet someone and there was a table of four people who'd just come over i, I had no idea who they were at the time and they were talking about films and they were trying to name an 80s movie and it, it slipped their mind and I could see the guy was struggling and I knew exactly what it was. And I just turned over and just said, three o'clock high. Ha. And he went, oh my God, yeah, that's it. Three o'clock high. <laughs> and he didn't say, what the f are you doing listening to our conversation? <laughs> you know, he was, <laughs> he, was, he, he was actually, oh my God, and we, we just ended up talking back and forth. And now that's great. I actually yeah. know that person very, very well. Uh, uh, talk to him all the time. That was just an aside and not in there. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's <laughs> fine. Because I, I was kind of hoping that Steve would kind of latch on to three o'clock high and, and find a nice way to work in a five. No, oh. no, I, I, I wasn't going for that. But now that you've been... Uh, no, I'm not even... No, no, you can do it. Go on, go on. Okay. Dig yourself well, out the grave, come on. 
God, I can't. I was, I was hoping there was going to be a good segue and I could let you... Now's the time to nominate five. Nominate five? Yes, nominate five. Or three, or four, or six, or nine. Now's the time to nominate five. And that is why I am not taking you with me to America. Ever. <laughs> Ain't I a stinker? Oh, nice. j- just for that, you owe me a drink in uh, Pottywood After Dark. All right, then. Fair enough. So, what's Nominate 5, Steve? Well, Nominate 5 is the point of the show where we ask our guests to nominate, well, five things. And the actual list varies from week to week, from guest to guest. Uh, sometimes his favourite musical cues, other times his favourite scenes in movies, other times his favourite movies that are part of a particular genre. And this week, with Matthew, our nominate five is going to be... On his five most influential cinematography. And I'm guessing, after our Raiders discussion earlier, that that's going to be up there featuring fairly high. Well, I'm going to be a difficult guest, and I'm going to modify the topic slightly. (laughs) Because here's the thing. I honestly feel like if I, if I were to name, yeah, right. (laughs) If I were to name that, then it would just be a list of Citizen Kane, Apocalypse Now, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Days of Heaven, Blade Runner, blah, blah, blah. Movies we've all seen and thought of a thousand times. So my slight modification is this. My nominate five influential films are sort of five films that I consciously take into battle on set. Like these okay. are these are films that I'll, I I actually consciously think of the cinematography when I'm lighting various things on set in my own work. Uh, so the, something like Apocalypse Now I think is untouchably brilliant, but it doesn't come into play a lot. I don't have a lot of colored smoke and things that I use on my sets very often. On the nominee five, so our countdown. Let's start with number five, Matthew. What have you got for us? All right. Well, I have gone in chronological order on this list. Yes! God! Yes! (laughs) Thank you, God! Someone has actually got the point of the article. Oh, God, yes. I want to cry. This is a a moment. Forget Richard Branson going into space. We've got someone to actually get the point of Nominate 5. Oh, God. Uh, So in chronological order, uh, for number five, it's uh, The Graduate. Um. So for me, The Graduate, the cinematography in The Graduate is just so brilliant. And it's hand in hand with the blocking because obviously the DP works very closely with the director on where the, how the actors are blocked and uh, how the camera moves around the actors and where the actors are compositionally. And The Graduate is just a masterclass scene after scene of compositions and actors in relationship to other actors in terms of power struggles and all of these kind of things. But what I love, what I take into battle from the graduate cinematography is how often characters are in complete silhouette. There are major lines of dialogue and major moments that are revealed with the characters completely in the dark or completely in silhouette. And I love using darkness like that. So the graduate's my first one. Okay, then in that case, what is going to be your number four? All right, number four from 1978. I'm going to surprise everybody with... John Carpenter's Halloween. John Carpenter's Halloween, not only is it one of my favorite films, but Dean Cundey's cinematography. Oh, and I should have mentioned that uh, Robert Surtees was the DP on Graduate. But uh, Dean Cundey's work on Halloween, to me, 
is how to light night for horror or even just for a dark scene in, in, a, in a drama or, you know, or a romantic comedy or something. Dean Cundy uses pools of light so effectively in Halloween and, and, and contrasting color temperatures, the blue and kind of the warmer tones of lights that are turned on. He knows how to direct your eye to a particular part of a scene. Uh, and there's one shot, famous shot even, where he dials up a light in the shot that simulates your eyes adjusting to the dark. Mm. So Dean Cundy's work in Halloween would be my next one. That's a very good choice. And that movie was released the week after I was born. And not only that, when I was in LA last, uh, the metro that I got is right outside the Michael Myers house. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so trivia. Yeah. So what is number three? All right. Number three is uh, Christoph Kislowski's Blue, part oh. of the uh, Three Colors trilogy from Brilliant. the 90s. And uh, the, the cinematographer on that was oh, what's his name nah, now i'll have to cut this <laughs> uh it was I, I believe it was the cinematographer on that was slawomir idziak oh, i'm sorry let me check uh, it was okay. slawomir Izniak. yes <laughs> yes he shot many french film <laughs> <laughs> all right so <laughs> but did it have pepe Le Pew? all right I'm not sure if you were going for <laughs> Russian or French. I couldn't make that out. It's nice. <laughs> or a bit of Kazakhstan as well. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Oh, so, so the cinematographer on Blue was Slavomir Idziak. I'm sorry for my pronunciation uh, problems there. But what, what I take on to set about this are the non-obvious choices. They're, they're extreme close-ups with like a periscope lens of a of a feather blowing slightly on a hospital bed to tell us that this one character has survived a car crash and that she's still alive. You can see her breath reflected in the, in the feather blowing on the bed. Or, you know, also the use of foreground objects shooting through something. There's a, a hanging mobile in, in an apartment of these kind of blue crystals and the camera will kind of go on one side of it while the character's face is photographed through the blue crystals on the other side. So I, I really find that inspiring to try to think of non-obvious choices. No, it's a brilliant choice. I absolutely love that movie. And you're the yeah. first person who's ever mentioned that on the show. Nice. What's your number two? All right. The next one is, uh, I think, the Citizen Kane of color photography, which is uh, Scorsese's Casino. Yes. And oh, Casino just pulls out all the stops. Uh, Robert Richardson's photography on that is constantly inspired. I think Bob Richardson is my most invoked DP on set because I'm constantly putting uh, what I call a Bob Richardson hotspot into different frames just to spice things up. And a Bob Richardson hotspot is some portion of the frame that is overexposed by like eight stops uh, of light. And if you have a good black promist or some other kind of filtration in front of the lens, that highlight will glow. It, it'll actually, there'll be halation around the highlight where you'll see this kind of a glow. And, uh, and Bob Richardson is famous for this. Another great movie that he, he used this technique a lot in was uh, Bringing Out the Dead. But no. the Casino, yeah. Casino just has every, cinematography technique he even irises in on certain details uh like an old silent movie you could see like an iris uh, the, the edges of the frame darken just to point your eye at something specific so i just can't say enough about the casino cinematography it's one of my favorite films as well 
Absolutely genius. Okay. It's going to be hard to beat them, but what the heck is number one for you, Matthew? Well, I got to say, num- uh, and again, it's not a countdown to number one. It's, it's just chronologically, um, number one is No Country for Old Men, which oh. is my favorite film of the 21st century. And uh, Roger Deakins' work in this, I, I, I'm constantly thinking in my in the back of my head when I'm lighting different sets. There's there's a scene in a hotel room with just some deep orange sodium vapor light coming in from the street, and just the way he uses shadow and light in that whole hotel sequence uh, when our when our hero is kind of trying to escape from uh, the serial killer, the Michael Myers of Anton of the Chigurh. Movie. Yeah. Yes. But 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 not only is that lighting great, but what I really take on to set is for night exteriors, the scene where our hero in No Country for Old Men revisits this kind of exterior where these cars are laid out and this drug deal has gone bad. And he goes back at nighttime to try to take a water jug to this guy that he saw earlier who had asked for agua. And he takes the water jug back in the middle of the night. So there's no lighting that's motivated. And yet the way Deacons lights up that scene in the middle of nowhere, far away from any city is just spectacular. And as our character looks back to where he's parked his pickup truck on top of the hill, Deacons has put a bank of huge lights on the other side of the hill. So he's just lighting the sky. There's just that moisture in the sky at night that if you put some big ass lights (laughs) on the other side of a hill, and just aim them up into the sky. It'll actually create just enough of a glow um, for a perfect background silhouette kind of effect. It's ju- it's just amazing work, start to finish. Until Harrison Ford tries to land his plane there. <laughs> <laughs> now, that is an absolutely amazing nominate five, and you, your descriptions of them were so fantastically detailed as well. I'm sure it's going to open the eyes of a lot of people who are actually going to either go and see those films. Or have seen them before and want to go and check them out again. Matthew, thank you so very much for coming on to the show uh, with us this week. Uh, Absolute pleasure. pleasure. I knew you'd be an amazing guest to come on and really educate us on this part of the business that not a lot of people focus on on their podcasts when they have this you know variety of different people. Yeah, it's true. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's always nice to get a different angle on the business from one side of another because we've had uh, we've had actors and producers and uh, directors so it's always nice to just get someone else's uh, viewpoint on it which you wouldn't normally get great oh i had a blast i appreciate it you guys yeah it's so easy for people just to think of a cinematographer and not really know what they do but you know they kind of as a profession they kind of tend to put me in a box what's in the box what's in the box What's in the box? What's in the box? I I just I, applause to you, Matthew. <laughs> that was That's good. The, fir- the first guest that has ever segued <laughs> to what's in the box. It proves people listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, what's in the box? We could stop that. So. What's in the box? Basically, this is my attempt to educate Steve on movies because he is delving into the world of video games. He may be the only person who has actually seen Mortal Kombat Annihilation and yet not seen something like Citizen Kane. And I bet you haven't, have you? I I actually haven't, no. Exactly. So, in my mission in life, 
Yeah, but then again, you're only just getting into Splinter Cell, so don't give me that. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I was too busy watching movies and being educated and, you know. <laughs> so what's in the box is something that I do for Steve's benefit to help him kind of understand movies by choosing ones that are certified fresh, aren't rotten tomatoes, that he has probably definitely not seen, which, to be honest, the majority of them you haven't seen so far. There's only been, I think, four... Yeah, Over but the course of these that episodes. doesn't necessarily mean that the ones that you pick out now, I won't have seen. I could have that seen is, them. That is very true. And the reason why we choose Certified Fresh, we don't always agree, as most people don't agree on a lot of films that are Certified Fresh, but they are ranked among some of the best films. So I have created a box, and I pull a different title out of the box every week. If Steve has seen that movie, that one goes aside. We choose another until... He is actually, we actually find a film that he has not seen. Yes, and speaking of which, considering that last week we picked out Waitress, and this week we had the cinematographer for the movie Waitress, I'm actually starting to feel a little bit of cheating going on for last week. Well, it wasn't actually, because uh? once I pulled that out of the box, and it was supposed to be Elizabeth last week, but when I realised that Elizabeth was not available for the day that we needed to record, i.e. today... Uh, I looked through the list of people that I've gotten for. Oh, actually, I'm, I was going to ask Matthew to come on this show, I think it was about a month away. But I thought, you know what? Why not? Let, let's get him in. It'll be something interesting. You just so, wanted to see me squirm. Uh, yes, the, that too is an, an added benefit. But anyway, am I going to get this film out of this box for Come you? on then, pull it out. Okay. Whack it on the table. <laughs> okay, so this week we have... Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story by Jake Kasdan. Seen it. Oh, my Lord. You need to walk hard. I'm actually amazed you've seen that. Okay. Yeah, I've seen that one. Now I've got to go and find another. Seen that one. It was funny. Okay. Up next, John Dahl's movie, You Kill Me, starring Ben Kingsley and Tay Leone. Uh, that I haven't seen. It's good. I love John Dahl. He's one of my favourite directors. In fact, I got compared to him recently, which was quite an honour. So, there you go. I was about to make a joke about him being fat, but then I realised I've got no idea if if he's fat, thin, or whatever, so it wouldn't have made a very good joke anyway. So, Are you yeah. trying to say I'm fat? Nah, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, is Matthew even still here? Matthew? Yes. Oh, you are here. Have you seen you... Um, you UKIP. Have you seen <laughs> UKIP? Yes. You know what? I have not actually seen that flick, so maybe I should also uh, check that out this week. Yeah, do you it, should. watch it, and then, uh, you know, I know that you two know each other on Facebook, so you can come and join the discussion on there, and we, you can <laughs> say if I was right, if I was wrong, whatever, when uh, when this show goes out next week. Yeah, I'm just yes. kidding. I'm not actually going to see it. All right, fair enough. <laughs> Fine. So... Uh, next week we have uh, Elizabeth J. Carlyle. The week after, Russell Mulcahy is joining us, and I don't know how we're going to compress that career into one episode, so I think we're just going to have to do our best to focus on the uh, anniversaries of Highlander, Highlander 2, and Ricochet, so how do we kind of tie that in? We talk about the shadow. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> 
So once again, uh, thank you very much to Matthew. Uh, you can find Matthew's website at matthewirving.com where you can see all of the movies, uh, well, see the trailers and all of his bio for all of the movies that Matthew has done. <laughs> Absolutely correct. Uh, yes. Thank you so much, guys. It's been so much fun being here. And we'll hopefully have you back again soon. Yeah, I would love to. Okay, so in the meantime, uh, I've been Andrew Roger Carson and incredibly struggling this week. And I have been full of a head cold. Yes, but I hear that the bar is opening for Poddywood After Dark. Uh, bring your own martinis, listen to the jazz music that sounds like uh, a one-man band falling down a flight of steps. Yes. And just come and listen to us say the odd swear word and get bleeped out. Yes, and I might even change the bleeping effect this week. I don't know yet. Ooh, controversial. Yes. Uh, For now, though, you take care of yourself, and we will see you next week. Bye! You realise they'll be closed now.